0: All right, we're in verse 14 tonight, and uh, this is an interesting church. Let's pray, and we'll jump right into this. Father, we bless your name. God, we're so thankful for this particular letter. Every letter is good. God, every letter, there's something uh, that we have taken away, and God, you've grown us in how you've dealt with each of these churches. God, the good and the bad... And tonight, even the ugly, Lord, there's something that you have for us. And so tonight we pray that you would help us to receive the warning that is expressed in the waywardness of this church. God, we pray tonight that you would help us to see the beauty of your love. We pray this evening that if there's a, a deviation in our spiritual trajectory at all, um, God, maybe maybe even just a half a degree. We pray tonight that you would help us to realign ourselves and that we would be just hitting the mark in our relationship with you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, I I have a love-hate relationship with politics, all right? Um, I love politics in the sense of... I, I, I am intrigued by social structures, and I'm intrigued for sure by world history and how different types of social structures have had an impact. I'm definitely deeply grateful for the Judeo-Christian foundation that we have in our country, and I've always found, and, and I'm thankful to have a, a system of government that is via representation. You know, we have the great privilege of voting people who run the government into office. I mean, hopefully not run the government into the ground, but you know, we get to vote them into office. Uh, and you know, I just say all of that to say, on, on the one hand, I really love it, and then the political process itself, and sometimes the politicians, just drive me nuts. I don't know about you guys, but it just it drives me nuts, especially the political flip-flopper. Do you know what I'm talking about? The person that has, provides all of these promises just to get into office, and then at the end of the day, they never fulfill any of the promises that they make. They'll say whatever they can to get the vote. <clears throat> By the way, just chill out. This is not like a political thing tonight. This is this is correlated to the condition of this church. Uh, but they'll say whatever, they'll say whatever they can to get into office. Maybe they're running for re-election. And, you know, especially in Mexico, we see this happen all the time or in foreign countries where all of a sudden there's all of this infrastructure spending on these communities just to kind of, you know, make, give people the, 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 a good last impression. They've been miserable for four years or three years or however long the term is. And then all of a sudden, right when they get to the very end, it's just like all of this spending in the community to kind of give people this uh, last memory of, well, they weren't too bad, when all along they'd made promises that they never fulfilled. And, you know, I think we struggle with this because it just demonstrates that these individuals have a lack of personal convictions. Really, really, it's not about what they believe. It's not that they're standing strong on their convictions. They have none. It's just uh, a matter of expediency, doing things just so that they can get voted back in. Uh, I think we struggle with this because there is uh, unbelievable unreliability. And, and let me just say, you know, in the per- current political climate that we're in, I, I think I know there are many people who are like, man, pastor, why should I even vote? Why should I even ga- engage? I mean, politicians are so unreliable. Um, And, of course, there's a good answer to that. You should because we're blessed, we're privileged to have, like I said, a political system of uh, being represented by people that we vote into office. Um, I think we get frustrated because, at the end of the day, we're not really sure where people stand. And as bad as that is, as frustrating as that is from a political perspective, let me say it's even worse for the Christian. It's even worse for the lukewarm Christian. You know, the, the lukewarm Christian that says a whole bunch of things, but the reality is this, they live their life uh, in a way where it's evident that there is a total lack of personal conviction, you know, where you look at these individuals and, and you want to rely on them and trust in them for good, godly, solid character, but you know at the end of the day they live their life based on what's expedient for them and, you know, what, what's in their best interests, You know, the the type of Christian where you're not really necessarily sure where they stand because they flip-flop between the word and the world so much. I think the scariest thing that can happen to a Christian is to live in a place of self-deception where that individual thinks they're right with God when they're actually not. And this, you know, it's appropriate that we're studying this church Uh, On this particular day, on Halloween, you know, where there's so much emphasis on what is scary and um, what strikes terror into the heart of people. And if any of these letters should strike terror into the heart of the Christian, it should be this one. The warning about being lukewarm, being all talk with really no spiritual action in our lives and you know, so it is a very sobering letter as we read it tonight. Um, I, have, I have no doubt that you're going to you're, you're be sobered up, just like I'm sobered up. Not that I'm drunk, don't get me wrong, but you know, in a spiritual sense, sobered up as we read this. Um, and listen, as sobering as this letter is, I think maybe the biggest thing that stands out to me as I'm prepared for this message is the beautiful expression of the love of Jesus Christ. I mean, as messed up as this church was, as much as, as they had forsaken the great blessings of God, as wayward as they were, as off track as they'd gone, you know, as many degrees as their spiritual trajectory had shifted at the end of the day, what you're going to see at the end of this letter, is just an amazing expression of the love of Jesus uh, and how He does not quit on us. Aren't you thankful for that tonight. I mean, thanks. Haven't you had a moment? Haven't you had a moment where maybe you've just been a a degree off? Anybody? Anybody? Are you all perfect Christians here tonight? Man, God bless your souls. We'll just close in prayer right now. You know, you've been a, a degree off, or maybe you've been many degrees off, or you started really strong and then you 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 know you backslid. You were prodigal, only to find you know uh, a savior who never stopped loving you. Really, that's the message of this uh, letter tonight. So let's read together. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, that's important, right? So of course, this is the standard structure of these letters he gives. Uh, The identification of this church, uh, writing to the messenger, which of course we've talked about, that being the lead pastor of the church, the one responsible for shepherding these sheep and giving to them faithfully the word of God. What's different here in this introduction is the simple word of. Typically, you know, it is uh, the angel uh, uh, of the church, in, you know, and then you have the particular location. It's different for this church because they're living their lives differently. This really is the church of the Laodiceans. We'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But all the historical context of this church, um, it comes to bear when Jesus identifies their spiritual condition, their wayward spiritual condition. This was a very wealthy city. In fact, you know, if if you later on go back to the uh, back part of your Bible and you have Bible maps and... What you'll see, you probably have a map that lays these seven churches out. And as you look at the uh, particular location of this church, it was actually the banking center of the whole region. Very wealthy city, um, had, had all of the trade that was flowing from east to west and then west back east came through Laodicea. Uh, and it was it was a city that was opulent. It was built out like any other Roman city. It had an amphitheater that sat 30,000 people, which means that the population of this particular city was well over 150,000. It was an entertainment capital, and so people would come from all over the place. Surrounding cities, Colossae was close, uh, Hierapolis was close, Philadelphia, of course, was not that far away. Uh, this city sat in a plain, and so it didn't have any natural defenses. It was indefensible. And so because it was a wealthy city, oftentimes what the Laodiceans found themselves doing was compromising with their enemies and buying them off. The one asset that they did have was great wealth, and so, you know, this was the way that they defended themselves. They didn't really have a standing army, and there were no walls around the city. And so they would just buy off, they would compromise with their enemies and buy them off. That will become significant later on. It uh, was a a city that had um, a temple to Asclepius, which means that it was medically advanced as far as cities in that era went. It was especially advanced in ophthalmology, um, and they had devised in this city a very special eye salve that was able to heal all sorts of um, ocular maladies. It was interesting as well because Laodicea sat, if you've been there with me, you know, you saw this yourself. Laodicea was directly in between Hierapolis to the north and Colossae to the south. Colossae was a city that sat at the base of the mountains. And not only did it have a natural uh, freshwater spring, but all of the All of the snow that would melt on off of the top of the mountain would ultimately end up in in Colossae. So fresh, cold water in Colossae. Hierapolis, there are these amazing hot springs in Hierapolis, which of course was something that was coveted at the time. Uh, And so you have Laodicea literally sitting between cold and hot. Um, What the Romans did is, you know, they coveted this hot water so much because in Basically, in every developed Roman city, there were, there were hot water baths, you know, um, that was kind of the center of the, the community, at least for the guys. Well, what they wanted to do is they wanted that hot water. There was no natural hot water spring in Laodicea, so they built an aqueduct from Hierapolis to Laodicea. But they'd made a mistake in the calculation. So by the time the hot water got to Laodicea, it was actually lukewarm. Right. And so when Jesus says that you are lukewarm, let me tell you something. Everybody in this community knew exactly what that meant. The word Laodicean means people rule And uh, I think that there's some significance in the name of this church because this church really was a church that was ruling itself Uh, and basically, like they probably wouldn't have articulated it like this and when they gathered together, of course, you know, it was all lip service to the lordship of Jesus Christ, but the truth is that it was their way or the highway. I mean, they literally were doing things their own way without concern about uh, what it was that Jesus desired. And I think this really does bring to bear the way he frames the introduction of this letter to this church. Literally, it was a church of Laodiceans. In other words, you know, Jesus is very subtly saying, hey, you know what? I can't tell the difference between you and the church and those who are outside of the church. Like, you're living in such such a compromised state, such a compromised condition, that there's literally no difference between believer and and unbeliever. And he's going to talk about that in just a minute. He says in verse 14, second half, uh, remember typically all of, uh, when we get to the revelation piece, you know, different elements or aspects about himself drawn from chapter one that he brings to bear for these churches, Uh, none of what is contained here in this particular revelation comes from chapter one, but they were all things that they needed to be reminded of. And, of course, he's speaking of himself. He says, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness and beginning. We'll talk about what that word means in a minute. And beginning of the creation of God. Uh, And so he refers to himself as the amen. Uh, the, The word amen means so be it. Let it be settled. This is the final word. And I think, of course, as he says this concerning himself, he's reminding them that he is the final word. You just, in other words, listen, you just can't add, you can't make it up as you go along. You don't just have the freedom to reshape this concept of relationship with God and the way it's been established according to the apostles' doctrines any way that you want. You may be creative, and God God bless you for your creativity, but you just can't go and reorient the way God has shaped and prescribed the way we're supposed to approach him And make it something that's more convenient for you. He's the amen. He is the one who has settled it. He is the faithful and true witness. Jesus is ultimately the political leader who will never flip-flop on you. And he's the political leader your heart has always been longing for. You're like, wait, when can we have somebody who will just be the perfect leader? Well, let me tell you what it is. Let me tell you who it is. It is Jesus in your life now. And it will be Jesus when he rules and reigns in the millennial kingdom. He is the perfect leader, right? He is the one who will always be faithful and true to what it is that he has said. He is faithful and true, listen, he's faithful and true to himself. He will never contradict his character and his nature or what he's declared. He is faithful to you and to me. It is impossible for Christ to be unfaithful to us, and he is faithful to all of the promises that he has given in his word. He, somebody say amen to that tonight. He is the beginning of the creation of God. Uh, the word beginning here, RK, does not refer to like the chronology of creation. We're talking about primacy. We're talking about how he is first. We're talking about how he is the ruler. In fact, there are some translations that uh, translate the word beginning to ruler. So we're not talking about the chronology of God's creation. We're talking about his absolute supremacy over it. And I think, again, this is a subtle way of saying, hey, I just want to remind you, as you have sought to rule yourselves and kind of make it up as you go along, and reshape my prescription into something that's more convenient for you. You need to be reminded that that I am the ultimate authority, that I have primacy over everything in creation, and and I do think that he is setting the stage. Like if you're, if you're in Laodicea and you're hearing this letter, he is he is pre, preempting, you know, the challenging piece of this message that is going to be a strong. Correction It's going to come with a lot of conviction, and he's laying the groundwork for his authority uh, in being able to convey these difficult things that they were about to hear. You say, well, what, they, what were they going to hear? Here it is, verse 15. I know your works, yeah, like, like we've discussed in the past. I see everything that's happening in the church uh, without exception. And this is, you know, sometimes it's like, hey, I know your works. Uh, You have labored and you've been patient for some churches. And you've identified those who are apostles and are not. And and you've suffered and you've endured. And you live in the place where Satan's throne is. I mean, that's what he said to some other churches. To this church he says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Shall we close in prayer? (laughs) I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine? I mean, I've said this before, right? Hey, what was it like to sit there in the gathering of God's people and get a letter from Jesus, you know? And and remember, this church is so self-deceived. There is no doubt. There is no doubt. They... all of these letters went in a cycle, right? I mean, this was the postal cycle uh, that the Roman postal service would have serviced cities by. And so it's very possible that, that by the time the letter gets to Laodicea, the other churches have already read their letters, And it it might have been, I'm just saying, there's there's some speculation in this, but it might have been, hey, you know what, he said this to Ephesus, and he said this to Sardis, and man, Philadelphia just got this amazing letter, and you know, they were so unaware of their spiritual condition, it might have been for this church, what's he going to say to us? I mean, they had a lofty, elevated, self-exalted view of themselves. There is no doubt that this church was not worried there is no doubt that they were not worried. There is no doubt. Let me say it a different way. There is no doubt that this church was totally surprised by the words that were just read to them, and they would have been familiar with the whole concept of hot or cold. Jesus says, I know, I know where you're at. I know where you're at. I know the condition of your heart. I, I see everything that's happening in the church in a general sense, and I see what's happening in your life. And you are neither totally against me, nor either are you totally for me. I would wish, I could wish that you were one or the other. Jesus is talking about their spiritual condition. Like I said, he, he is saying to them, I really know where your heart is at. And my opinion on the matter, you're not cold or hard. And my opinion on the matter is, I wish that you were one or the other. I mean, we haven't gotten there yet, but, but clearly what he is saying is you have cold, you have lukewarm, and you have heart, you have heart, you have hot, and the worst, the worst possible place a person could be of the three is lukewarm. Of course, the best place to be is spiritually hot, totally all in. Serving God and living the the best life that you possibly can in your relationship with him. Walking in communion and living for the sake of the gospel. You know, if you're to put them in a hierarchy, of course, that is where Jesus desires all of us to be. Totally on fire for him. Is that is that where you're at? Let me just ask you. I'm not talking about spiritual perfection tonight. You know, I'm not talking about uh, having All of your life, all together, I am saying that he has all of your heart. He has all of your heart, like you love him. You've been born again. He's been gracious to you. He's demonstrated his love undeniably through the cross of Christ, his own son. And you came with nothing. You came in the red. It's not even that you came with a blank slate. It wasn't that you were just, you know, it was a wash, It was that you were deep in the red you owed. There was a debt that you couldn't pay yourself, and you discovered the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How and why? Because God was working in your life, and because His Holy Spirit woke you up and enlightened your understanding so that you could even get it. And then in this beautiful spiritual epiphany, you recognize, like Job said, that you needed a daysman. You needed someone to stand between you, an unholy, unrighteous, sinful person, and a perfect and righteous and holy God. And you couldn't work your way to him. There was no stairway that you could build to heaven. There was no, uh, there's no assets that you could have, that you could give to somehow curry the favor of God. It was an otherwise hopeless situation. And then then he revealed to you that he had supplied the Savior. He had supplied the Deliverer. That he himself in the Son went to the cross and hung there in your place and paid a price that you could never pay for yourself. He laid it down. He laid down the glory and the honor and the adulation of heaven. He condescended to a level we'll never understand. You know, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with, with God, but he made himself of no reputation, Jesus did. And he came in the likeness of man in the form of a bondservant endured the death on the cross. And you saw that and you put your trust and faith in it and you were surprised by joy and you couldn't believe that God could love you so much. Do you know what I'm talking about tonight? Like, isn't he good? Isn't he good? He's amazing. He's amazing. And so you've started taking steps of faith. And because of the cross, because of the love of God, not because of some rules that are in a church... Not because of some you know, uh, Christian cultural environment that you're living in, but because of what he has done for you, you are all in for him without reservation, without exception, without holding back. In the times where it's easy, in the times where it's inconvenient, that, that's what it means to be spiritually hot. Jesus, of course, desires that. If it's not going to be that, it's better to be cold. It's better to understand that you yourself are positioned against him. I'm not abdicating living a spiritually cold life, but I think what Jesus is saying here is at least you know where you stand and you have, a, you have a realistic understanding of your condition before me because it's in that place that I can convict you, Jesus would say. It's in that place I can convict you. You know you're not right. You know that you have positioned yourself against the gospel. You know that you're not all in. And, and not, not, not only do you not know you're living your life in a way that expresses that. It, it's better to be hot. It is better to be cold. The worst thing is to be lukewarm because when you're lukewarm, you know just enough to make yourself believe that you're okay when you're not. And in that place of self-deception, do you know how hard it is to hear the voice of God? Do you know how hard it is to hear the voice of God? I mean, you you know in that place where you've convinced yourself that everything is okay when it's not, when you've listened to your own voice uh, support yourself in the compromises that you've been made, when 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 that record in your own mind has been playing and, and you have you have supported yourself and all of the justifications for the sin that you've made in your life, and pretty soon the lie that maybe you were at one point sensitive to you know where there was there was some conviction there was there was some pang that was happening in your heart as you were engaging in things that weren't right and you knew it and yet you hardened yourself you know you you Cauterize your own conscience. God has given us a, so many tools to be convicted of sin. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's placed a conscience within us. But you know, the, the longer we choose to live in self-deception, the harder it becomes for us to hear the voice of God because our hearts become hardened against him. You know, the Bible talks about getting to the place where our own conscience has been seared, and the word seared, the Greek word, the root of it is cauterized. And, of course, you, you know when you cauterize flesh, you're melting flesh so it binds together. But when that happens, you lose the sense of feeling. And in that place of self-deception, what happens is over the course of time, you lose that. And I'm not reducing our relationship to God, uh, with God to feeling, but I am saying that we become insensitive Insensitive, that place of lukewarmness, you know? I mean, Jesus is literally on the outside of this church trying to get in, and they don't even realize that they have kicked him out. And so what does he say? Well, just like, you know, if we, when we order drinks, we order them either ice cold or really hot. You either want your latte ice cold or you want it piping hot. But once your latte has been sitting on the counter for a couple of hours and you drink it and it's lukewarm milk, right? How miserable is that? It's just totally nasty. You pour it out because it's lost its purpose. Or, you know, you take a drink of it and you spit, you spit it out because it's just so vile and I'm not saying that Jesus is calling these people vile, but he is saying, you've lost your sense of purpose. You've lost your sense of value, right? You should be in this place where you're pleasing to me, but because you're not any longer, I'm going to spit you out of my, of my mouth. This is not, this type of lifestyle is not why I died for you. Now, I know this may sound harsh uh, tonight, but, but, you know, I mean, he's got a great message of love to this church, but this church needed a wake-up call. And, you know, it is one of the longest letters. He spends a lot of time conveying the spiritual condition of this church to them, and he's not done. He goes into now a description of their spiritual condition and what was really happening at the root. So he says this, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know, self-deception, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Oh, man, could you imagine? You know, is, is everyone looking at each other? Is, is the pastor shaking when he's reading this? Are, are his hands sweating because you know it's just such a, a, a heavy letter? You know, he describes what it means to be lukewarm. He says a number of things here. Number one, he just conveys their self-deception. What was the problem? Because you say, because you say, because you're reinforcing these, these false ideas. Because the voice that you're listening to isn't my voice, it's your own voice. The words that are most important to you, to your heart, have become your own words. And this is the message that you've been telling yourself, that you're you're rich. I am rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. Jesus for sure is not saying that wealth is a sin because we know that having an abundance of resources is definitely not a sin but this church had come to a place where they were actually trusting and relying on the resources that god had blessed them with to the extent that they were no longer trusting in the lord they were loving their possessions more than they were loving the one who should have been possessing their souls first timothy 6 10 says this for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I think that that is uh, an apt description of this church. This is a, a, a warning that Paul gives to Timothy as he's pastoring the church of Ephesus, not far from Laodicea, although decades from when this letter was given to the church there in Laodicea. And the exhortation, you know, was such a strong one. It's not that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. And it's the love of those resources that has, in fact, in some people's hearts, caused them to stray from their faith in their greediness for more. And it's pierced them through with many sorrows. Because, number one, you know that money is never going to satisfy the need that you have in your heart. And number two, when you walk down that road and you get further and further away from God, one day you work up, wait, one day you work up, one day you wake up like the prodigal son and you realize how far you've drifted from the Lord. Look, I, I think, uh, this is a different point, but I think that the condition of this church was probably evident to all the other churches. I, I, You know, I think of the church of Smyrna, or I think of the church of Philadelphia. So many of these churches that were you know, 30 or 40 or 50 miles away from this church that were struggling, that were impoverished, you know, where there was real social economic persecution. And it seems evident to me that this church was never moved. They were never moved. They were able to watch their brothers and sisters suffer financially, and they had absolute abundant resources to be able to supply in their time of need, but they weren't even burdened for the suffering of other people. God help us, right? God help us. I, I know that financially, uh, for some of us, we're living in very challenging times, but, but Christians in America are still amazingly wealthy compared to, to Christians in the rest of the world, and, and you know that less than 1% of all of the giving that happens in uh, the churches in America actually goes to churches in the 1040 window, churches that are living in absolutely impoverished areas. It's, it's amazing to consider how few resources actually go to brothers and sisters who are having real need. I think that this church was, they were just dead to that. Their message to themselves was this, we have need of nothing. Hey, we're good to go. We're independent. We're self-satisfied. We're totally secure. He's, it's an interesting word. He says, you've become, right? I mean, there, there must have been. It's not maybe even that this church was always in this financial condition. This is speculation, but, you know, I take that. That phrase, and I think, well, you know, maybe this this church was in a place where they these people were struggling, and the financial struggle was a piece of what had drawn them to the Lord in the first place. And then all of a sudden, because of the medical advancements in the community, because it was a center of banking for the region, because black wool was uh, an export that they had that went all over the world, and there was. All of a sudden, this immense wealth that was coming in that wasn't there before, hey, times are good, things are good, we've become wealthy, we, God, you know, they probably didn't say it like this, but it was like, God, we don't, hey, thanks for stepping in for a little bit, we don't really need you anymore, you know, I mean, it's amazing how we can be in a moment of our life so desperately in need of God, and we, it's that foxhole Christianity, we cry out, we're begging God, God, help us, you know, the need is great, and, and there's a moment of total dependence upon him. And then all of a sudden things get better and, you know, it's like, well, thanks for stepping in there, God, but I really don't need you anymore. It's possible that this church was in that spiritual condition. Like I said, they were a church that was ruling themselves. Now, I'm not necessarily sure if they really did start out self-deceived. I don't think that they did, but I think it happened over the course of time. So... Number one, they were self-deceived. Number two, there was a painful reality uh, that was underlying everything, and Jesus says this in very strong terms. Five results of lukewarmness, by the way. Um, if you're not if you're not hot, <laughs> and you're not living in a spiritual place uh, of being on fire for the Lord, and you're not cold, but you're lukewarm, let me just say to you tonight, all of these are true for you, all right? All of these are realities for the lukewarm Christian, and they're realities because their reality is because Christ is on the outside. Now, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but Jesus is going to say to this church, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. I'm on the outside, but I want to get back in. But the knob is on the inside. I'm not just going to barge my way in. You need to open the door. And as these five things are really rough things for this church to hear. But they were realities because they'd placed Christ on the outside. Number one, he says, you're wretched. You're wretched. Thanks for coming to church today. Maybe the pastor said, but you're in a place of spiritual wretchedness. You know, the, the word uh, can also be translated, probably better translated, you are the wretched one. You, and he's, of course, talking about their spiritual condition. You're miserable, You're actually an object of pity, not an object of admiration. I mean, they probably, these wealthy Christians, probably strutted through their city, and and maybe they looked at their church, and they had this, you know, exalted view of their church, and maybe they compared their church to the other churches in the region, and, you know, those poor churches, those suffering churches, and in their mind, they probably thought, hey, I bet those Christians wish they were in our situation. I I bet those Christians wish they had what we had. You know, they had this view of themselves that was so puffed up, and Jesus says, listen, you're not an object of admiration. You're an object of pity, and you don't even see it because you're so self-deceived. He says, number three, you're poor. You're poor. You, You have looked at your financial possessions, and you've valued those over everything else. You've evaluated yourself as having all of this great standing because your criteria is a worldly criteria and not a spiritual one. You're driving the, the coolest cart. You're clothed in the finest threads. You have you know, your 401K set up and your retirement is settled. You've got money where you can travel to, to any Roman province that you want to and you think somehow that all of that has made you some, some object of admiration. Maybe as you walk down the street, you look at poor people who have nothing. There's abject poverty, and you're like, oh, you miserable, wretched thing. And, and Jesus says, no, that's you. No, that's you. You've been evaluating your life by the wrong criteria you're all networked, and you live in this community, and you drive this car, and you think you're all that. And the fact is, this you're you're poorer than the poor people that you walk by every single day, because you you have you have used the wrong criteria to value who you really are. He says you're blind. The fourth thing, you're blind. You can't see. You may live in a, in a society that has advanced ophthalmology, I mean, you may be, may be thinking, hey, you know, we've, we've solved all sorts of uh, ocular maladies around the world, but the truth is this, you can't see a single thing because I'm on the outside, because I'm on the outside, because you've lost perspective, because I'm not your center anymore, because your trajectory is out of alignment. You're living in this place of spiritual blindness. You, you yourself can't even see your own con- condition. And not only that, you're naked. <clears throat> you're naked. You're not, you're not clothed by my righteousness in this condition. You know, you may be, like I said, wearing the, the finest clothes. You might have your Armani toga that you roll down the street in on any given day. But the truth is this, you're you're naked. You know, all of your opulence has no value whatsoever. It's a scary place to be. It is a scary place to to be. And look, I just wonder, I don't say this in a critical or judgmental way. I say it in a concerned way. I say it as a warning for myself, for sure, because anybody can go down this road. But I wonder today how many people sitting in churches across America are Laodicean, are Laodicean. You know, they've evaluated their own lives by the criteria of this world. They've got a little piece of Christian spirituality in their lives. But the fact is, they're not hot and they're not cold. They're self-deceived. They think they're right where they need to be, but they are in the wrong spot. What a strong word he gives to this church. And let me just say, I think it's natural for us to think that the letter would end there. You know, because it's because you think, man, this is just so bad, what an offense, how repulsive to the cross of Christ. You know, for sure he's done with these people. For sure it's like, hey man, you all, you had your chance. I mean, look at all I did for you and you seriously are going to you're going to treat my sacrifice like that? I mean, the thing that amazes me most about this letter is what Jesus says in verse 18. Uh, And, of course, in verse 19, I counsel you. I counsel you. Stop listening to yourself. Stop listening to your self-justifications. Stop listening to all of the rationale behind your compromise. And start listening to me again. Listen to my voice. I'm going to say some things, Jesus says, that are probably difficult for you to hear. But if you want to be right with me, you need to listen. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesab that you may see. Number one, he says, buy from me gold refined in the fire. In other words, you need to start by recognizing your own spiritual poverty you need, to, you need to restart this journey with me by reco- recognizing how far you have fallen. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this is the starting place in our relationship with God to recognize how spiritually destitute we are without the Savior. And so when he says, coming by gold from me, he's talking about receiving the, the riches of all that he has accomplished through the cross come to me recognize your spiritual poverty and i will make you rich in faith again you know white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed i will clothe you not not with not with things that moth will moths will eat away right this is what jesus said don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven or don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Jesus says, listen, I will clothe you not with a clothing that is finite and temporary and that will fade away, but I will give you white garments so that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Look, I think in, in this, Jesus is saying, deal with the issue now. Deal with the issue now because the fullness of your spiritual condition is going, I love you so much, it will be revealed to everybody so that even I will use shame in your life to draw you back to me. You know, he will do that. He, he loves us so much that the sin that we conceal and our compromise, he will shout from the rooftops because he wants us to be drawn back to him. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And so he says, if you come to me, I will restore your spiritual sight so that you're able to see me once again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? For they shall see the Lord to be able to walk once again in those things that are pleasing to God so that we can see him. He goes on to say in verse 19, this is just so beautiful, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. He says, listen, the reality is what you're responding to is my love, as many as I love. Now, how many does he love? Let me ask you this question. How many in this church did he love? He loved all of them. He loved all of them. The door was open for all of them to respond to him in faith, to respond to his love. It is, it is the love of Christ that leads us into repentance. I think it was the love of Christ that restored Peter. You remember after Peter denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? But all of that, all of that pulling Peter back in was based on the love that Christ had demonstrated to him. As many as I love. In other words, I've loved all of you. I've not stopped loving you. I love you even at your worst. In fact, in the original language, the I is emphatic, and so so what are you saying? Ah, as many as I love. You if even though you failed in loving me, I have not failed in loving you. And so he beckons them to come back to him because of his love. He rebukes them because he loves them, right? I mean, this is, this is just such a good thing. I know sometimes when you come to church and you hear a word that hurts, it's like, man, why did I come today? This isn't why... I want to come to church and leave feeling good. Well, listen, if you can go to church all the time uh, to a place where when you leave, you feel good and it never hurts, you're probably going to the wrong church because he loves us enough to chasten us. He loves us enough to say those things that will convict us. Uh, He loves us enough to draw us back when we're wayward, just like any parent would do uh, because they love their child. And so the exhortation is be zealous and repent. Man, make the change now. Don't put this off. Don't think, hey, you know what, I'm just gonna continue for a couple of more weeks or months in this condition and and just get the most I can out of it and maybe I'll have a deathbed reconversion. No, that's not the way we think because he loves us. What do we do when he speaks to us and our hearts are convicted? We're zealous. We're excited. We respond immediately in repentance. We make that U-turn And we turn our hearts back to him. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So this is where we get the picture of Jesus standing on the outside of this church. I'm not making a case for these people Losing their salvation, and I don't believe that is what he is saying here, because he is speaking to them as children of God. But he he has been put on the outside. They have disconnected themselves so much from Jesus. He says to to them in an illustrative way, "I'm on the outside, and here I am, and not only am I, not only am I." present here, but I'm knocking on the door. There are two Greek words that we translate into our English word knock. This means to bang on the door hard. Behold, he says, I'm here. The question isn't where I've gone. The question is where you have gone. I'm still here pursuing you. I'm still here knocking on this door. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. Look, it's not enough to hear the voice of Christ, you have to open the door to him. The latch is on the inside, as it were. And he's a gentleman. He's not just gonna barge his way into your life. He needs you. You know, we give an opportunity for people to receive Christ at the end of services. We give an opportunity for people to renew their relationship with Christ. Maybe they've gone wayward. And in that second piece, that's what this is about. This is about you know a, a, a Christian hearing the word of God and being convicted in their heart and being honest with God and acknowledging that they're off track. And as they've heard, now they're taking a step of faith and they're opening their life again so that, number one, they can have communion. And that's the promise here. I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. The Middle Eastern way of expressing oneness, unity, Uh, communion with the person was to eat a meal with them, and Jesus is simply saying that, I will come in and restore the communion that I once had with you. I I just think it's so beautiful how simple this is. He doesn't say, hey, when you get your life right, when you fix your problems, when you make amends and resolve all those issues, he doesn't have a a 50-step process to being restored in relationship with him. He says, "Just open the door so I can come in and I will do the rest." Verse 21, "To him who overcomes I will grant to sit with me on my throne, uh, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne." Uh, I love this. You know, it's it's not as if this church, if they did respond and they were restored in communion with Christ, it's not as if they were going to be treated as second-class citizens. And I I think sometimes, you know, we would have the tendency to think, well, you know, in heaven, you know, as everyone's gathered together in that great celestial amphitheater, these people are probably sitting in the nosebleeds. You know, I mean, they've they've made such a mess of their relationship with God that, you know, there's got to be some consequence for that. And Jesus says, no, you're not going to be a second-class citizen. You're not going to be sitting in the nosebleeds. You are going to be sitting with me on my throne. Man, how awesome is that? You know, if you're wayward tonight in your relationship with Jesus Christ, let me just say it's one step. It's one single step, and the extent to which he can restore you is beyond what you can imagine, but it's expressed here in these words. In just a moment, right, if you're zealous to repent in that, in that moment as your heart is convicted and you've recognized how far you've fallen away from him. And in responding in repentance and turning, you know, 180 degrees back to the Lord, he will restore the communion and he will restore the promise, that eternal promise that he has for you, even the beauty of sitting on his throne with him in the millennial kingdom. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful tonight for this word and it is a beautiful word to this church, a hard word, without a doubt, a convicting word for sure, uh, an awakening, God, an awakening word for probably many, and a, a letter that we pray was received, and a message that was embraced, and a restoration that happened. God, we don't know what it, what it was that you did ultimately through this letter and. And that's in your hands. What we know today is we've, we've read the letter and we've heard the message and there's something for us to respond to today. We ask that you would just be gracious as you move among us to do the work in every heart that needs to be accomplished tonight. Tonight, as our eyes are closed and as our heads are bowed, There's two things I want to ask you tonight. The first one is this. Have you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ? I'm talking about taking that very first step of faith and believing in the gospel, believing that Jesus came to this earth to live a perfect life and to die on the cross, like I said earlier, to pay a penalty that you could never pay yourself because you've been separated from God by your sins, That's true for you, that is true for me, that is true for all of us. And the only way for that separation to be addressed is through faith in Christ and believing for yourself that he died for you and that he rose again from the dead, receiving him personally as your Savior and as your Lord. And I'm saying... You know, being in a place where you say to him, Lord, tonight I receive you. I trust in you. I believe that you died for me and that you rose again, and now I want to follow you all the days of my life. Tonight, if you've never taken that step of faith, I want to pray for you this evening. God has been speaking to you, and you need to begin your faith journey with him right here and right now. And if that's you tonight, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you You've not come in as a Christian, but tonight you want to leave as a child of God. Stretch your hand up high tonight if this is you. God bless you right here in the front. It's awesome. Thank you. Anybody else? It's no accident that you're here tonight. It's good that you have come to the gathering of God's people, but there's more that God has for you than just being present. He wants you to be his child. Stretch your hand up high if you need to take this step of faith. Awesome, you can put your hand down. Tonight, in addition to that, listen, maybe maybe this letter is, is convicting for you. And conviction is not a bad thing. Conviction is a good thing. It's a sign that God is speaking to you and he's drawing you to himself. And maybe tonight, honestly, uh, this that the condition of this church is similar to where you've been living your life as a Christian. And you know, you've not, you've not been all in. Your, your life ha- has not been lived in a way where you would say that you are spiritually on fire for the Lord. You sit in a seat, you come to church, but your heart doesn't belong to God. And maybe there's been a confession of faith in your life, but you're not, you're not demonstrating that. You've been living with a foot in the world, and you've been trying to have a foot in the word, and the fact is you're a miserable person. And tonight you need to be all in. You need to make the choice that he is going to be Lord over all, that you're not going to be playing games, you're not conceding to self-deception, you're not going to be listening to the lies any longer, but you're going to give to Christ what he deserves because of his great love for you. Maybe tonight you've just been on the run from the Lord as a prodigal. You need to come back to him. As we started the service, I said maybe the trajectory of your spiritual life is off maybe just a degree, but he's spoken to you and you need to realign yourself to him. And so tonight if this is you, I want to pray for you. There's a step of faith for you to take tonight as well, but you need to get to a place in your life where you are on fire. He's been standing at the door, he's been knocking. You need to open the door and let him in. If this is you tonight, would you raise your hand? You just stretch it up high. God bless you. And I see your hands. That's awesome. Thank you. I see your hand in the back and over here. Thank you so much. And here in the front on my left. Over in the back. Uh, in the back on my right. Hey, it takes it takes boldness and courage and and humility to do what you've just done in raising your hand. And I think it's amazing. And God is going to bless you so abundantly tonight. Is there anybody else? I see your hand over here on my left. I see your hand over here on my right. God bless you. I just, I just want to say to the, maybe that, you know, you're, you're, you're Mr. Tough. You're a tough guy. And you know, you, this is how you live your life and you have this persona and this facade and the fact is that you have a, a wounded, broken heart and this big facade that you've been putting on really is just a, a cover, it's a shield because you're suffering on the inside. And I just want to say to you, strong men put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Tonight, tonight, if this is you, I want you to raise your hand. You need to take a step of faith tonight and be honest with God and humble yourself and come in your weakness. Come in your weakness. All right. Father, thank you so much for the work of your spirit in this place. And we're just grateful, God, for every life that's been touched tonight. We pray you'd give them strength now to take this step of faith in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together tonight. Uh, Listen, there's many of you who raised your hands, uh, one for sure, putting their trust and faith in Christ for the first time, some of you getting back on track. You know, maybe it's that condition of spiritual lukewarmness, maybe there are decisions in your life that you've made that have been compromised. Um, I do believe tonight that God is, a, is inviting you to come to him, like I said. There's a step of faith for you to take tonight, though. And so what we want to do this evening is this. Um, the worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship, and Jake is. And tonight, if you raise your hand, I want you to come forward to the front, all right? We're going to invite you forward to the front. You need to take this step of faith. You need to step out of darkness. You need to step out of compromise. You need to step out of... You know, misalignment with God, you need to come forward, and you need to stand here and say, God, I belong to you. God, I want everything that you have for me. God, I am not playing games with you anymore. I want to be spiritually on fire with you. I want to walk with you all the days of my life. And so if you raised your hand, make your way down here right now. If you didn't raise your hand, and this is you, you need to come down right now as well and let God do what he wants to do. This is the promise of Christ. He says, open the door and I will come in and I will restore communion. How can you say no to that? How can you turn your heart away? He has so many good things to you. Reject the lie of the devil and receive the truth of Christ tonight.
1: Are you hurting and broken within? Are you overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for my drink from the well? Jesus is calling. come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide, forgiveness was brought with the precious
0: blood of Jesus Christ. All right, hey, this is awesome. Give God praise tonight. So good. We're so thankful for all of you. Listen, I just, you know, we just want to extend the opportunity one more time. You know, I am totally familiar with how challenging this step of faith can be to take. And I, I I just inevitably there's somebody that's sitting in their seat and you know God is speaking to you and and man, you're just torn, right? You're torn. There's tension. You know that you need to respond to this message, and then you're thinking down the road and you're concerned about what this step is of faith is going to mean in all of these different areas of your life. And I just want to encourage you tonight, just trust God with this step. God will handle everything else. God will handle the relationships. God will handle the decisions that you need to make tomorrow, but there's a decision that you need to make today, right now. And that's a single step of faith in following Him. And so tonight if there's that tension in your life, there's that battle, there's that struggle, there's a tug of war. You need to choose to let God win that. You need to reject and resist the lie of the devil, and you need to follow after God with all of your heart. There are miracles that God desires to do, miracles waiting in your life to happen. They will not happen unless you take this step of faith. And so we just want to give you one more moment. I know that God has just spoken to somebody. You need to listen to the voice of God, be obedient, and come down here and let me lead you in prayer.
1: Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Sing hallelujah. Christ is risen, bow down before him, for he is Lord of all, sing hallelujah, Christ is risen, oh what a
0: This is absolutely amazing. You guys come on forward right here. And and I want the church right now. You need to give God praise like like crazy. It's so good. So amazing. I'm going to lead all want you all to st- take a step forward to the stage, okay? And I'm going to lead you in a very simple prayer. I want to encourage you to follow me in this prayer. This is your prayer to God through Jesus his son and God has promised to answer this prayer. He is going to answer in a way that is above and beyond what you could ever imagine or think. God is the one who is going to be faithful to you. And so tonight, as I lead you in this prayer, I want to encourage you to repeat this prayer to God out loud after me. God, thank you that you have spoken to me. And I come tonight... Giving you everything, holding nothing back, trusting in you, believing in Jesus your Son, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. And tonight I choose to follow him. Forgive me of my sin, fill me with your spirit and give me strength to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen, amen, Amen. oh man, amen.